Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. If I sound a little hoarse, it's because I am. I spent the weekend uh, backyard camping with my son and his schoolmate. We uh, started, they were out of school all week this week for spring break. And by uh, Friday, we began setting up camp. And I live on this old farm, old farmstead. Used to be hundreds of acres. Now it's it's been chopped down to the 10 acres that that we own. And the old farmhouse and the old barns and all that, that's where we live. So we got, we got a good bit of space to take a couple of 10 year old boys out and camp out. You know, it's, it's like I, I live on my own state park. Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of room, especially when you're a 10 year old kid. It seems like probably a, a really giant place. Anyway, Friday morning, we started dragging out the camp and stuff. Really? In my mind, I was just getting everything aired out for the coming bluegrass festival season. But we, uh, you know, built a big old fire and had a weenie roast and spent, you know, set the tents up and stayed out there. I've been standing around a fire all weekend. Get up in the morning, throw some wood on those coals and stir them up a little bit, get the fire going, cook bacon and eggs. You know the routine. And while the, while the kids would be playing, my wife and I uh, spent the majority of the time going around the, the yard gathering up sticks. Because if you have pecan trees, you're going to have a lot of sticks in your yard. And they build up. We pile them up at the bottom of each tree. And eventually we have a, a big burn. So pretty much while they played, my wife and I trudged around the yard uh, dragging piles of sticks on a tarp burning sticks. Uh, what I'm saying is I've, I've breathed a lot of smoke this weekend and I'm a little bit hoarse, but uh, as they say, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. I want to go through two things in this episode. First is a little short update about the mandolin treasure chest. I need to say something about that. And then I'm going to get into the, the heart of this episode, which I call let me see that banjo. I'll talk about that in a minute. Let me get this housekeeping thing out of the way with the mandolin treasure chest. A couple of weeks ago, I did the first bonus episode. I think bonus episode zero one about the mandolin treasure chest. And a lot of people have listened to that thing. And there's some good advice in there, even if you're not a mandolin player and have had people purchasing and downloading the thing. And I warned in that podcast that it is a humongous file. So if you don't have good, fast, reliable internet service, you know, you might want to stick with the buy lessons one at a time plan kind of thing. But if you want the thing, it's a big file. And I, I, I kept saying throughout the episode that it's, you know, pretty close to five gigabytes and it is, I think it turned out to be 4.3 gigabytes or something like that after it was compressed. Anyway, here's the issue that I want to talk about. If you're one of those people who have downloaded it and are having trouble unzipping, you know, decompressing the files, because when you receive it, it's one file. You know, I think it's, I forget the exact name of the file. It might be something like treasure.zip. And, you know, if you're familiar with computers, you know that a zip file is a compressed file. And when you unzip it or decompress it, it expands it into the folders and individual files and so on. So when you take that uh, treasure chest file and unzip it, then you have a folder that says mandolin treasure chest and you open that and look inside and there's folders that says video lessons and a folder that says um, PDF eBooks 
and you open those and there are folders within those folders that have all the nine books and, and the other folder has all the 24 video lessons. So it's a, it's a series of nested folders. And so when you open one of the video folders inside, it will be the video file and all the audio tracks that go with that lesson and the PDF. I talked about all that in the, in that episode. And that's not the issue here. The problem is I have found out from a couple of people who bought it and had trouble unzipping the file. And here's what I've learned. I just want to tell you in case that it, in case you're having the same trouble, or if you're thinking about getting it, you'll know this in advance and you'll be able to avoid the trouble. Here's the problem as I understand it. Now I need to preface this by saying I have primarily been a Mac user since the day of the 1984 um, Big Brother Super Bowl commercial. I'm not a Windows guy, but the problems are occurring with Windows users. And here's how it here's how it goes. Apparently, certain versions of the Windows operating system choke when they try to unzip a file that is larger than four gigabytes. And I've done some research over the past week and confirmed that this is true. I cannot tell you exactly which versions and so on, but basically the windows operating system, as does the Mac operating system has an unzip routine built into it so that you can just double click a zip file and boom, it just unzips. But apparently certain versions of windows choke on a file. If it's four gigabytes or larger, and this file is larger. So one of uh, your fellow listeners sent me the solution and there is a program, a free open source, free downloadable unzip utility for windows called seven zip. It's seven dash zip. If you Google seven dash zip, you can download that unzipper for windows. And there's, there are several to choose from, and you need to choose the one that matches the type of windows computer you have. Everybody that has used seven zip to unzip the file has just unzipped it flawlessly. And they're off and running with their mandolin videos and eBooks. So I just wanted to mention that as a tip to you, if you're thinking about doing the mandolin treasure chest thing and you're operating with windows, scope out this thing called seven zip. And I updated my page that describes mandolin treasure chest and added that information there and put a link to that seven zip download site. So again, you can just go to bradleylaird.com slash treasure. And on that page, I think I even put it in red and I talked about this there. So, you know, get the seven zip thing and it will make your life easier when you're trying to unzip large files. Now let's turn the page. And that was all mandolin centric stuff today. I'm going banjo centric because I am of course a banjo player too. I, I was definitely more eaten up with the idea of being a banjo player in the early days. Even while I was learning the mandolin, I mostly wanted to be a banjo player, you know, I'm a closet banjo player still to this day, and I've had a lot of banjo students over the years. So this, this particular episode is oriented toward banjo players. Maybe I'm, you know, trying to make up for that Mando centric Mando treasure chest thing, but here's what I'm going to lay out over the next couple of episodes. I'm going to do a series kind of like I did the series about being in a band playing over PA systems and that little series. I'm not guaranteeing that they're all going to come out, you know, one, two, three, four in order, but let me describe what happens a lot of times when I'm teaching lessons, a student walks in, they get their instrument out. I got mine. We start talking and tuning and start plunking around and we work through some things and then they go home and then they come back the next week and we're working on some more things. And then maybe we're into the third week and we're doing something and I'm watching them and they're not playing all that good. And at the end, they, they play a little something and they stop and I see them take their left hand off of the neck and shake their hand. Like, like it hurts, like, ouch, 
I go, uh, are your fingers sore? Well, yeah, the kind of my, the tips of my fingers are getting a little tender from all this playing. And right then, it's it's usually at that two week or three week point that finally the light bulb came on over my head, and I was like, oh, hang on a second. I put my instrument in the case. Doesn't matter what instrument it is. I put mine in the case, and I say, here, give me that thing. Let me look at that. And I realize that I we've gone maybe a week or two or three, and I haven't even tried their instrument. I don't know what they're dealing with. It may be a punishment device rather than a musical instrument. The action may be so high you could slice eggs. I, I don't know. And at times I remember to check it out early, but a lot of times it would take a week or two and then it would dawn on me, oh, no wonder they're having trouble. Here, let me, let me see that thing. So I'm calling this episode, let me see that banjo. And I'm going to, kind of take you through what I would do at that point. And so they're, you know, they're there for their 30 minute lesson and I'm going to eyeball their banjo, really give it a good going over to try to determine, is it set up good enough that they can practice and, and not go through painful experiences and have it play in tune. And, you know, and, and I maybe have neglected doing that up until this, that two or three week point. So I say, Hey, here, let me put mine down. Give me that banjo. Let me take a look at it. And what really happens for the next five minutes or 10 minutes of that lesson time is I am inspecting that banjo and trying out a whole lot of things and comparing it to what I know a good instrument should feel like and behave like. And I'm just kind of going through what you might call a pre-flight checklist. I remember when I was a kid, I was probably in about the sixth grade. My father took private pilot lessons. He was going to learn to fly. He did learn to fly, you know, a a light aircraft. He was flying a, a Cherokee uh, I think it was Piper, Cherokee 140, a low-wing jobby, single-engine, fixed landing gear type of airplane. At that time, there were, your your choice was you could either fly that or you could fly a Cessna 150, which was the high wing. Anyway, Dad was taking lessons, and he, I was super interested in this and building model airplanes and stuff like this, and I dreamed of one day you know, getting my pilot's license because I found out you could get your pilot's license younger than, than your driver's license. And I thought I'm going to get my pilot's license, you know, when I'm 14, I think it was 14 then. Anyway, I can remember going with pop to the airport and he's going to take me for a spin in the, in the Piper. And before we would go, he would go through the pre-flight checklist and he literally had a checklist on a clipboard and I'd be sitting there strapped in the, in the co-pilot seat and pop would be out there walking around the airplane. He's running his fingers up and down the leading edge and the trailing edge of the propeller feeling for nicks. Then he walks out and he's running his hand along the wing he checks, looks in the pitot tube, I guess it's making sure no dirt daubers built a, clogged it up or built a nest in it. He walks around, you know, he's yanking on the rudder and pulling up and down on the elevator and kicking the tires and all that kind of stuff. And he's checking off items on his pre-flight checklist because, you know, I suspect there would be a, a lot fewer car breakdowns, mechanical breakdowns if people did the same thing with their car. I walked out there the other day, hopped in the car, drove halfway to town, which is about nine miles, going to pick up my son, and and the steering just felt weird. So I pulled over on the side of the road, got out, walked around the car, and my right front tire was down to about 10 pounds of air. I'd got a nail, probably out of my own driveway. And it was running on about 10 pounds of air. Luckily, of course, I had the little 12-volt compressor in the back of the car and I plugged it in and five minutes later I was aired up and on my way. But if we would, if I, if I had walked around the car all the way around and kicked all four tires before I took off, 
if I'd done that little pre-flight checklist, check the oil, you know, I would have solved that before I ever left the house. Well, this is what you need to do with your instrument. You need to do that pre-flight checklist on your instrument. And professionals do this every time they get it out of the case. I mean, they kind of give it the once over. They know it's 98% perfect, but something might've gone wrong in the interim period. You know, while it was sitting in the case, you know, you check your tuning, you, you look it over, you know, it's something gone wrong. And with banjos, especially there's a lot of things that can go wrong because there's a lot of, uh, screws and nuts and bolts holding that all that thing together with guitars and mandolins and fiddles. You're relying on glue and glue tends to stay glued together. If you don't leave it in the trunk of a car or out in the hot sun or bake your mandolin in a hot black case it tends to stay together. Uh, but banjos don't there. It's all held together with screws, nuts and bolts. So, the playing, just playing it, carrying it around, the vibrations can cause parts to go loose and, and they're fully adjustable. You can just take a banjo completely apart on your kitchen table and put it back together. And maybe after this episode, I might have encouraged you to actually do that. But anyway, all the player is doing right before they walk out on stage is just giving it the, the once over the pre-flight checklist, make sure everything looks cool before they go out there. I don't know if you listened to the, uh, I, in the, the very first interview I did was the David Ellis interview, old friend of mine, multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist guy. And he used to tell a story of his band. I think it was Windy Creek. He talked about was playing a show and they were, they were opening for the Osborne brothers. And this was a high point. You know, he's pretty young at that. I think he's about 14 at that time. And so this is a big deal. You know, they want to come out and do a good job. And he was the banjo player and he walked out on stage and just did a pinch. That's the first and fifth string together. Just bang, you know, hit a couple of bang, 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 I guess, checking his tuning. And at the instant he was supposed to kick off the first tune and the Osborne brothers are standing back in the wings, you know, <laughs> He hit that banjo, hit that first lick on that banjo, and the tailpiece let go. And all the strings just flew off of that banjo, just like, fring! the bridge fell off. And he's standing there with a banjo with all the strings, all five strings just dangling with the tailpiece hanging, dangling, swinging from the end of his neck. All because there is one screw that holds the tailpiece on typical banjo like a presto type tailpiece. The tailpiece is down there and the one little bolt goes through a bracket and there is one nut, sometimes a little lock washer, but there's one nut there. That's it. That's all that holds the thing on. Well, that thing had vibrated and gotten loose and the nut was completely gone. It had fallen off, but by some miracle and by sideways tension, that tailpiece was hanging on because it's a threaded screw. So the threads are kind of digging in a little bit and it's being pulled sideways. So it didn't immediately just jump off. But when he walked out there on stage and hit that first lick, there was enough tension that it, it tore the whole thing loose and just went sprung, you know, and he was embarrassed and, you know, had to run backstage and take the back off the banjo and hunter it. I, think maybe he barred a nut off of a different bracket to put the thing back together. And, you know, two minutes later they covered and he recovered, but weird stuff can happen. That's all I'm saying. And a pre-flight checklist could have possibly prevented that. Although I, I don't think I've ever, you know, gone to the uh, extent of removing the resonator and checking the tightness of everything right before I walked on. But in that particular case, I'm betting that he would have, <laughs> he would have wished he had done that anyway. So here I am with the student, you know, his hands aching. So, and, and I realize I have not even scoped out the banjo. So I'm just, I'm going to walk you through what I would do as soon as I take their banjo and put it in my lap and what I'm going to do. And it's not the same. I'm not about to set up the banjo. 
I'm just seeing if it needs set up. Okay, so this is something if you're, especially if you're a beginner, actually I've known people who've been playing several years, three or four years, and still are struggling with an instrument that is not set up nicely. So when I get the thing in my hand, first thing I'm going to do with that banjo is eyeball it. I'm going to look it over. I, you know, I really haven't paid attention to their banjo. Maybe they walked in with some old 25-year-old, uh, you know, silver tone banjo, or maybe it's a good time, or maybe they got a Gibson RB250, or maybe they got a, I mean, you know, people walk in with all kind of instruments. And the thing about it is, it doesn't matter what quality level instrument you're talking about. They all need this because you can have a, you can have a Gibson RB 800. That's what David played and have loose brackets on it and have a loose neck and have, you know, the action set up too high and have a high fret. I mean, just because you have a, let's say a $5,000 banjo doesn't mean it's set up right. And doesn't mean it's ready to play. Same goes for a $50 banjo. You bought at a yard sale. More than likely, you know, the lower you go, the more likely things probably need to be done. But anyway, so I got the banjo in my hand. Here are the things in order, as I kind of recall doing this many, many times that I would do. As soon as I get my hands on it, I'm going to eyeball it. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to feel the strings. I want to see if they feel like crappy and rusty and cruddy. Are they black looking or are they nice and shiny, silvery looking? You know, looking for crud, just crud buildup, you know? Is there so much gunk on the fingerboard that I'm also looking, kind of just taking a look at the fretware. Are they nice and shiny and rounded, you know, like the back of a, like the roof of a school bus? Or are they got little dents in it like, you know, a gorilla's been jumping on top of the school bus? Imagine what the roof of that school bus looks like. That's what your fret tops look like after long periods of playing, you know, have fingernails been digging grooves in the, in the fingerboard. I'm just for the first time looking at that person's banjo really closely and making mental notes of like what, what would need to be done possibly. And does that affect playing a little tarnish? Isn't going to affect the sound of it. You know, it doesn't, I don't care if there's a mirror polish on the frets. So I'm giving it eyeballing it. Then the next thing I'm going to do is actually kind of play it a little bit and form some chords and stuff and check the action. And action means how does it feel to your hands? And you, I suppose you could say more in a more technical way, action is how high the strings are above the frets. Really high above, you call that a high action. Really low down, the strings close to the string uh, to the frets, you'd call that a low action. So I'm just going to look at that. Is this even in the realm? Is it within the the norm of you know what I consider to be a normal action? Is it? Oh my God! I, first time I've looked at it from this perspective, and your strings are three quarters of an inch above the twelfth fret. I'm like, whoa! From where I was sitting in my chair, it, it didn't look that way. Oh my God, we need to lower this action. I'm going to feel around up at the nut. I want to feel how does the action feel at the nut. I want to look at it now, 12th fret and, and so on, and just see, does it need to, do we need to do anything with the action? That's all I'm trying to determine. Next thing I'll do is I'm going to take that banjo and set it down on my feet and, and sight down the neck. I want to just, Take a look down the neck and see, do I see some bow in the neck, some forward bow? Or do I see back bow, or does it look pretty flat, or do I see a big twist in it? And I'm just going to sight from the nut toward the bridge and just look down it and, and assess the situation. And then the next thing I'm going to do is what I call the shake test. And that's if you take, let me grab my banjo. If you take a banjo and it's sitting where, where the pot is vertical in your lap in the normal playing position and the neck is extended up, you know, toward the two o'clock position, just your, what I'm saying is your normal playing position. 
if you grab the pot of the banjo, not the neck, you know, grab, put your fingers on both sides of the neck and grab all the way up to the rim and put your thumbs back there on the resonator. So you got a good grip on the pot of the banjo. Then give it a strum and shake that banjo forward and back. Hear that wavy sound? Every time I push it forward, the neck moves forward and lowers the pitch of the strings. Like that. And when the neck comes back, they go sharp. You can do the same thing by playing it and pushing and pulling a little bit on the neck. Don't go crazy. Don't snap your neck off. And if you snap the neck off, don't blame me. I'm warning you right now. But what I, what I like to do is see how much of that wavering you get. There's a lot of weight up at the peg head with those four big, massive straight through tuners. There's a lot of mass out there. And, and as you wiggle the, the pot, if you wiggle the pot a quarter of an inch, you're going to see the peg head move two inches or three because it's amplified. It's farther away. And every banjo ever made is going to make that wavering sound like this. They all do that. But a neck that is extremely rubbery, loosey-goosey, or if you have a very weakly built banjo, it's going to do a, a lot. I mean, it's not going to be this slight pitch change. It's going to be massive. It's going to be wow, wow, wow. I mean, huge. It's going to like sound crazy. And let me explain why this is. Inside the banjo, the, the main part is the rim. It's a wooden hoop. On, on something like a Gibson Mastertone, that's going to be made of three-quarter inch thick maple. So you got a wooden drum made of three-quarters of an inch thick of rock maple. That joker is solid. So when you bolt a neck onto that and you try to waver it like that, it's not going to waver much because that rim is so solid. But on the other hand, if you have um, a, a, an inexpensive banjo that, let's say, has a quarter-inch or three-eighths-inch thick plywood rim, that rim is going to be a lot more flexible. And so when you give it that shake, you're going to get a lot wider pitch changes. Now, when you're playing, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be shaking it. You, you want to remain real stable. But I've seen banjos, real cheap entry-level banjos, um, you know, like a silver tone, like a like a, an old K from the 60s. You got a, about three-eighths of an inch plywood rim. And inside there, which I'll talk about in a minute, you have two rods or one rod that cross across the pot and connect from the from the neck down toward where the tailpiece is if you have one rod your neck is going to be a lot more flexible if you have two rods it's going to be a lot more solid and the diameter of those rods affects the stiffness of the whole instrument so if you if you have like a gibson master tone style banjo you're going to have two coordinator rods and they're both going to be three-eighths of an inch in diameter that's pretty massive. But if you have an old K, like the first banjo I ever had, and I still see banjos just like this today, you may have one eighth, one eighth inch diameter rod. That's it. One, one eighth versus two, three eighths inch diameter. You see what I mean? So the question, what I'm trying to determine when I grab the banjo from the student, maybe they're having all kind of tuning problems. It's just like it's constantly, no matter what they do, they sound like they're out of tune. And maybe their banjo is just not solid enough. Or the parts are loose. So the next thing I'm going to do, let me put my banjo back. Incidentally, that wavering thing, I've, I've seen a lot of pros use that as a vibrato, kind of a you know, as a special effect, like especially on, 
on ending note of a song. They'd hit a thing and then give it a little shake and you hear that wah, wah, wah. So it could be put to some use. But anyway, if I detect that that banjo is really almost like a, if you know what a whammy bar is on an on electric guitar where you can make that thing, make the pitch drop by a you know, whole step, wah, 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 you know, um, if that banjo sounds like it's got a whammy bar on it, it may be built extremely lightly or parts may be loose inside there. Those coordinator rods may be loose. So the next thing I do, oh, and by the way, if you have your banjo in the standard playing position and you tune and then you lay it on its back, the pitch will slightly go up because the weight of the neck is now pulling backwards toward the floor. The pitch will go up a little bit. Then you rotate the banjo 90 degrees and the pitch comes back where it was. Then you turn it face down and it will go slightly flat. You can check this on a tuner if you don't believe me. Now, the more solid your banjo is built, the less that will happen. But sometimes with students, I've seen students tune their banjo with it laying in the case and then pick it up and start to play it and it's out of tune. It's because in the case, it's laying in a different position and the banjo is so lightly, cheaply built that just rotating it 90 degrees on the axis of the neck was enough to change the pitch. Now, there's there's nothing wrong with playing. A, you can play a lightweight banjo and play it in tune, but you need to tune it in the position that you play it and not be tipping it forward and backwards. If you got a really lightweight banjo, try this and see if I'm lying. On on more solidly built banjos, a la the master tone style, this doesn't happen very much because it's just a lot more massive um, construction. Okay, so next thing I'm going to do with their banjo, and this often freaks them out, is I'll take the resonator off. And they've never looked inside the banjo, and I figure it's probably good for them to see that, hey, this thing will come off. And it's usually you know, four screws around the, around the flange area. You take those screws out. Usually they're just little thumb screws and you can unscrew them by hand and take the resonator off. Now you can lay it open and show them those coordinator rods or in some cases one rod. And in some cases a very lightweight rod with a little turnbuckle in the middle. That's really on the low end of the spectrum. And by the way, I'm not talking here about the wood dowel stick type open back claw hammer banjo. Same principles apply, but they're not easily adjustable, you know, by grabbing your crescent wrench. So we'll save talk for open back claw hammers some other time. But the basic principles of what I'm talking about here are the same. When I look inside there, what I'm looking for, you know, for that student, my first look at it, I'm feeling around. I'm feeling every single nut on every bracket. The brackets are the, the screws that tighten the head. Many times I'll find one that's just really loose, doing nothing. It's just rattling around and just snug them up with your fingers. Feel around. See if you can wiggle any of the brackets at all. If you got a loose one, snug it up a little bit. That's all I'm trying to do is chase down potential rattles. Not trying to set up the banjo. Then I'm going to look at the neck joint. It can seem really tight, but then you look at it and there may be a sixteenth of an inch gap between the top of the neck and, and the rim. So I'm going to look at that neck joint pretty closely and there, there will be either the coordinator rods themselves are threaded and they're the nut that holds the neck on or there'll be nuts there. You're looking for loose stuff. You're trying to, like, can I turn that nut with my bare hands? If you can, it's probably too loose. So a lot of times I got a little six-inch crescent wrench that I carry in my banjo case. And all I'm going to do is put it on there and just barely snug it. I'm not trying to make any real adjustment changes. I just don't want it coming loose. Then I'm going to look down at the tailpiece. There'll be a little screw there. You, you should look at inside your banjo and see how the thing's put together so that you don't have the David Ellis experience where your banjo <laughs> explodes on stage. So you're going to scope all that out. Make sure everything is snug. We're not tightening the head. We're not adjusting anything. 
We're just making sure all the parts are snug. Put the back back on it. Then I'm going to take a look at the bridge because it's a movable bridge on a banjo. I, if they're playing out of tune, it could be the bridge is in the wrong place. And nine times out of 10, it is. So I'm going to show them a little bit about that and talk a little bit about that. I've got a, there's a page that I did last Christmas on my website describing like unboxing a banjo and how to set it up, you know, how to get it ready to play. I'll put a link to that on the show notes page. It's just a bunch of free info I put. I think I mentioned it a long time ago on the podcast. But if you go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode and click there, I'll put a link to that banjo setup thing. It talks about how to put your bridge in the right place. Okay, so I'm going to test that, and then I'm going to play every note on every string. I'm going to play the fourth string from the nut all the way to the top. And I just want to make sure all the frets actually function. If I play the 10th fret and I hear a sound, and then I play the 11th fret and I hear the same sound, something's not working, you know? You either have a high fret or a low fret. So every fret should give you a different pitch. Just just play them up and down. Beginners don't really have to go beyond the 12th fret at this point. You know, if if fret 19 is not working, that's not going to hurt you in the first six weeks of learning to play. Especially critical are like frets you know, one through seven, but you might as well go to 12, test all your frets, play every single note, just move your index finger along, plunk on the notes and make sure you're getting a different note. And sometimes due to fret wear, you're going to have a note that buzzes because one fret is worn out. And so you're pressing the string down farther and it bumps on the next fret. So listen for buzzes and weird stuff like that. That's what I would be doing as a teacher. I'd be kind of making a laundry list of, okay, is this thing playable? What needs to be done to this banjo? What can be done? Some things can't be done. You can't turn this banjo into a different banjo. Like the uh, neck wiggliness. You know, if you just have a lightweight banjo, you just have to deal with it. But if you have a high fret, that can be fixed. Or if your bridge is in the wrong place, that can be fixed. Or if you have rusty strings, that can easily be fixed. So I'm looking for a bridge placement. I'm testing every note. I'm kind of looking out for high and low frets. It's the pre-flight checklist that I should have done right at the start of lesson one. I, man, sorry about that. Now, what, what usually happens at this point is we've identified three or four things that need doing. You need a new set of strings. I've, while we were, while I was examining, I've already adjusted the bridge and put it in the right place, but I haven't cut the nut down. It, the, the nut is too high and I need to cut it down. Need to get my nut files out and do that. You got a little bit of bow in the neck and need to tighten the truss rod just to pinch your, your head is extremely loose. Need to tighten that baby up and so on. So I got this little list of stuff and they're looking at you like, I don't know how to do that. You, you expect me to do all that? And in time, yes, I do. Every banjo player ought to learn how to do their own setup eventually. But they're, and they're looking like, oh man, you mean this banjo I bought is a piece of crap? No, it's not a piece of crap. It just needs adjusting. And a lot of times, probably in half the cases, they would go, can you do it? I'd say, yeah, I can do it. 40 bucks, leave it with me this week. And when you come back next week, I'll, I'll do everything I can do to it. Or what we could do, if you got enough time, I'll just do it right now, depending on what I'll need to be done. And they go, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So I would grab a new set of strings, grab my nut files, grab my tools and, and it, you know, just go ahead and do it right then. Five minutes working on the nut, put the bridge in the right place, change the strings, tighten the tail, you know, tighten the head, blah, 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 get it all done. Man, this thing is great. See you next week. You know, I've done it that way too. But here are the things I'm just going to quickly recap that almost always I find where the student walks in with a banjo, the nut is too high in almost every case, especially brand new banjos that have never been played by anyone else. They send them out of the factory with the nut too high because they know you can always lower it, but you cannot easily raise it. So chances are your nut is too high. Go to that webpage. I, I'm, I'll put the link to on the show notes, 
I talk a little bit about that there. If your nut is too high, it's just going to be a struggle to play. Your fingers are going to get sore easier. When you do press the string down to the fret and get a good clean note, you're stretching the string and, and you're going to cause out of tuneness too. And as a beginner, you may not even notice that you're playing out of tune. But look, part of being a competent pro is having a good setup. And most of the time, the nut's too high. So expect that, especially with a brand new banjo. Number two, almost always the head is loose. And that's because these plastic heads stretch. They put them on, they tighten them up at the factory, they ship it to you. Well, that plastic hasn't finished stretching. It's going to stretch a while and you're going to tighten it up and it's going to stretch out some more and you got to tighten it some more and it's going to stretch out some more. And eventually it quits all that. It sort of reaches, it has stretched as far as it's going to go and you, you don't have to monkey with them that much. But in the early stages, if it's never been tightened and how do you tell, just stick your thumb on the head kind of right in the middle and mash down on that thing. If you can move it an eighth of an inch, you probably need to tighten it. And your banjo will sound a lot better with a nice, snug, crisp, tight head. You do have to, of course, be careful. Like all things, don't over-tighten it. You know, But it's amazing. A little bit of head tightening will make almost any banjo sound better. If you had a loose head. Next thing, loose brackets. Almost every banjo that a beginner walks in with, if I feel around all, doesn't, doesn't matter how many, they've got 24 brackets, 16 brackets, whatever. I'm going to find one that's loose probably. And I'm just barely snugging it up. I don't want to over tighten it or I'll make the ones on either side of it loose. And I'm not going to talk in this episode about how to tighten a head, but just check for loose ones. You may have a loose bracket. And it'll rattle and buzz like crazy. Drive you nuts. And the bridge is nine times out of ten in the wrong place and making it play out of tune. The In the sometimes category, probably maybe one out of ten is going to have some kind of a bow in the neck. You know, where the truss rod needs adjusting. You take a little of that bow out or we need to introduce a little bow by relaxing the truss rod. That's probably one out of 10 banjos I look at. A loose neck, that's about one out of 10. It's amazing. And it's especially these yard sale banjos and stuff. And that's because the wooden parts over time have shrunken. If you take a, a nut and a bolt and screw it, let's say you drill a hole through a two by four and you put a carriage bolt through it and a half inch nut and you crank down on that baby. When that wood swells, it's going to crush wood fibers. So every time the humidity goes up, it gets tighter. And then when the humidity goes down, it loosens. It's the same thing that drives. If you ever walked around on a deck that's out in the, out in the sun and exposed to sun and rain, a lot of times you walk around and you, every nail head is poking up about a 16th of an inch. And occasionally you walk around with your hammer and you bang them all back down. That's because that swelling wood literally pulls the nails out of the deck. And then the wood shrinks back and they're poking up and you catch your foot on it as you're going up the steps. Screws don't do that. Um, anyway, this happens with banjo parts. The, being wood, it, it swells and then shrinks and swells and shrinks and can crush the wood fiber. So when it was tight when it left the factory back in 1963, it was tight. And now there you are in you know 2018 or whatever year this is. And the darn thing's loose. Just snug it back up and you're back in business. So a loose neck. If you do uh, examine the neck joint, especially on these banjos that only have one coordinator rod and a very lightweight one at that, nine times out of ten I can grab the heel of that banjo and just twist it side to side. An angle, you know. So one of the things you do when you sight down that neck is look at it, is it, are the frets parallel to the, to the body of the banjo, to the plane of the head? You know, a lot of times you can grab that neck and just scooch it over and get it back parallel and then tighten it up. And if you can't turn it and it needs turning, loosen it a little bit and then align it and retighten it. 
These things might be out of the realm of your experience level, but I guarantee it's not going to hurt you one bit to figure out how to get the resonator off and look inside there and feel around for loose nuts and just examine it. You know, it's, it's not that complicated, but a lot of people are just afraid to do anything mechanical. Other people are not. I know plenty of people listening to this have probably already disassembled their banjo and are, are doing a new inlay job on it right now as we speak. But I encourage you, the worst thing you can do is, you know, end up with a bucket full of parts and, you know, carry it over to your banjo teacher and say, hey, could you help me put this back together? You'll learn something. You know, you need to know how to change your own strings and all that kind of stuff. So don't be afraid of your banjo. Get in there and have a look at it. So there you go. That's what I should have done at lesson one with the person is, uh, let me see that banjo. So if you have doubts about your banjo, go find a banjo player, find somebody that you know, knows what they're talking about and say, would you mind taking a look at this? You know, and it's not always that guy behind the counter at the music store. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not that guy may be a, he may be great at replacing the pads on saxophones and he may pretend to know a lot about a banjo, but he may in fact know very little about a banjo. So don't, don't base your uh, selection on who to trust based on which side of the counter they're standing on. Many times it's a guy standing in the lobby with you. Who's over there looking at the banjos that probably knows 10 times what that guy behind the counter does. So anyway, you can always go to a bluegrass festival and find three or four of the best banjo players and say, oh, excuse me, sir. Would you mind taking a look at my crappy banjo and tell me what I need to do with it? You'll have so much free info. It'll blow your mind. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back in future episodes to run through a similar uh, routine for mandolin, guitar, bass, stuff like that. May not put them out all simultaneously in order, but don't worry. I, I know there are listeners that play all sorts of different instruments, and I'm trying to cover all the bases of things that I know about. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast. Hey, and one more thing. Here I am with that famous one more thing. I almost forgot. I had a guy uh, just recently send me a recording of himself playing a song. And let me read you the email. It's from a guy named Adam Grillo. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Adam, Adam wrote the following. Hi, Bradley. I'm Adam Grillo of Ohio. I've been following you for years, whether it's your mandolin lesson videos, and now your podcast, your information has helped and motivated me to play the mandolin for years. Thank you. And I thought you'd like to hear my version of Ricketts Hornpipe that I learned from Mandolin Songbook. Let me sidetrack here. Mandolin Songbook is a book that I did for Watch and Learn. As a, It was a follow-up. They had a beginner mandolin book called uh, Mandolin Primer that Burt Casey did. But they didn't have a follow-up book of more tunes. And I basically contracted with them to produce this book. And I, I think, I don't remember exactly, I think it has... 32 mandolin solos in it. It's called the mandolin songbook. It's sold in music stores by watch and learn. And I had to record all of the songs as I tabbed them out. Basically when they came to me, they said, you know, we just need some mandolin breaks. So I wrote all these, these things like amazing grace, battle hymn of the Republic, Caledonian laddie, Dixie, dusty Miller, Fisher's hornpipe, and so on. And I tabbed all this stuff out and I, and I produced the book and wrote the little notes for each song. And I thought I'm done. And they said, Oh, well, we're going to include a CD with it. Uh, we need you to record all of the, all of the mandolin songs that you did. I was like, Oh, great. Okay. So get in the uh, studio there, the little home studio. And I start playing the tabs that I had written. They're in tab and standard notation. And, you know, the difficulty is trying to play it absolutely what is written, not what I might play at a jam session. Because, you know, when I play Ricketts Hornpipe, there ain't no telling what I'm going to play. 
you know, but when I write down this note, this note, this note, this note, this note, I need to play this note, this note, this note, this note, this note, not some other thing that I happen to be thinking of at the time. So it was very challenging and I got through it all. You know, it's hard to take an improviser and turn him into a like orchestral note reader type of guy. But I needed the CD to match what was written on the page. I, I get that. So I, I got it all done and I had a guitar rhythm track that I played and me playing those 32 solos. And, you know, I thought I was done and I handed it all over to them and they're like, this is great. This is great. You know, here's your check. And that's pretty much what I got for that book. And, uh, but then they went, but you know, we really need you to do each one at two different speeds. And I was like, Oh man, back to the basement and record a second speed for each of them. So I did it. I tell you what, I was almost, uh, you know, contemplating suicide at the end of this project. I was so sick of, trying to play those exact songs at those exact notes that I had written out. And now I got to duplicate it at another speed. So I had a slow and a medium tempo kind of thing. It nearly drove me crazy, but I finally got the thing done, put to bed handed it over to him and, and that's it. And I, I still occasionally walk into these little mom and pop music stores. There's one over here in Buena Vista, Georgia, not too far from us maybe 25 miles. That's the nearest music store. And I walk in there and they got one of those watch and learn racks with the banjo primer and the guitar primer and the keyboard primer and the harmonica primer. And there is the mandolin songbook by Brad Laird. <laughs> and I'm like, Jackson, look at that. There's my book. And it's all dusty. You know, nobody's even looked at it. It's been there for five years, but they do sell a few of them. I, I think I get 25 cents or something every time they sell one of those books. But I kind of did that book and forgot about it. But people do find it. And Adam found it. And he learned the tune Ricketts Hornpipe. And he's obviously been doing some practicing. It's sounding pretty good. So I'm just going to go out of this show with, uh, here's Adam Grillo. And correct me, Adam, if I mispronounce your name. Uh, it looks kind of French, you know. Uh, anyway, here's Adam playing a little bit of Ricketts Hornpipe. 